this has been a, a, a series I've really enjoyed and some of the conversations I've been able to have. It's just been, uh, it's been great, some of the responses and the conversations that his, this has generated. But uh, life, and con- life and relationships are complicated. And the fact is that nearly all of us, all, nearly all of us get consumed by the here and the now and the demands and the distractions. And then we forget to pay attention to where we are headed. Uh, we forget to pay attention to where is my life going? Where do I want my life to end up? When God willing, I get to my 40s, my 50s, my 70s, or whatever it is, and I look back on these years that I can never get back, what do I want to look back on? I mean, there's something uh, that all, this is something that all of us face. And so for the past few weeks, if you would say you're a Christian, a Jesus follower, we've been talking to you, and we've been talking about you and about living a life with a God-given guiding vision for your life. And I've been praying earnestly for you. Uh, if you've ever wondered if somebody is up at 4.30 in the morning praying for you, you need to know somebody is, okay? So I'd really like for you to not waste that time, okay? Uh, but I've been praying for you as individuals and what God wants to do through you and in you as an individual, not just in this building and not just online, but ultimately throughout the week and in the lives of others. Because our natural tendency for any Christian connected to an organized church is to wait, The tendency is to wait for the church to plan an event or organize an effort, which we have done and we will do again in the future. But if you're a Christian, you need to not wait because you and I operate under the canopy of the Great Commission. And we've been told to make disciples, to make followers of Jesus. And that's bigger than just a Sunday morning gathering because God has orchestrated your individual life and the circumstances of your individual life to position you specifically to have an impact on a person or a group of people. And for everyone that would say, I'm a Christian, that we need to be able to point to a person or a group and say, I am actively praying for them. I am actively and intentionally investing in their lives to lead them into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you're not doing that, if you can't do that, we in the world need for you to begin to pray doubly hard. God, help me to see people the way you see them and burden me with the things that burden you and birth in me a vision for the next generation, for singles, for families, for college students, for teenagers, for my neighbor, for fellow students, for foster children, for the guy that I work with, for the people that I work with, the people that I've never met, but the people who are marginalized. Maybe they have no voice. Because when that happens, our meaningless flash-in-the-pan lives begin to take on eternal significance. And nothing would give me greater joy as a pastor than to be a pastor for churches just full of people who have individually taken on a genuine, authentic God-birth vision for how they're living their lives and what they're living it for and who are passionately pouring into the lives of others. I've also been praying that God would use this series and in 2023 to bring us closer and even more together as a church and that we would become more focused on our corporate mission of helping people to know and follow Jesus and that God that God would make us a community of people who have discovered and truly surrendered to the love of our Heavenly Father and are prioritizing our lives around the principles of His Word and that God would increase the clarity in our hearts and our minds of where He is leading us to and what He is calling us to do. Every single person that considers themselves a member of this community and that we would know what we're doing as a body and how each of you fits in. 
And, and last week I was uncomfortably uh, transparent with you. Actually, my wife listened to the message this last week. She happened to not be here Sunday. She's like, I'm so glad I wasn't there because I got really uncomfortable. And I encouraged you to take a big step in the area that Jesus described as the number one competitor for our heart. And if you missed that last week, I'm just asking you, even before the end of the day, to go ahead and watch or listen to that. I mean, maybe the idea of listening to two sermons in one day seems cruel and unusual, but you need to hear last week's message because the stakes are just far too high. And today we continue following the life of Nehemiah. Today we discover what anyone who lives for a guiding God vision, God-given vision for their lives eventually discovers, and that there, it will be something that can derail us. And that thing is opposition. See, there are people who will try to discourage you and dissuade you for living, from living for something bigger than yourselves. Because when you do that, they will try to do that because uh, living for something bigger than yourself causes you to rise above culture. It causes you to rise above the majority who are content to consume and focus on personal com comfort and content to just go with the flow of culture. And whenever you commit your life to living for something bigger than yourself, you're going to make people uncomfortable. And consequently, they're going to, you're going to face criticism and you're going to face challenges. Uh, one of the reasons is because living a life for something greater than culture plays on people's insecurities. It oftentimes threatens people because it often reminds them of what they are not or where they are not. In my life, I've had people criticize me for the vision uh, that I had for how I wanted to do marriage. I've had people criticize me for the vision of how I wanted to raise my children. I've had people criticize me for my philosophy of ministry and even for some of the compassion and justice work that I've been able to do in my life. And it's, it's so helpful as we turn to the fourth chapter of Nehemiah that we find out how Nehemiah handled criticism for doing what he believed God had called him to do and living the life that God had called him to live. Now, just a quick review, Nehemiah, he worked for the most powerful king in the world at the time. Uh, he had this huge burden, this huge vision to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild these walls that had been broken down for over 100 years, and through some incredible circumstances, he's given not just the thumbs up, but even the support of a pagan king, and he shows up in Jerusalem. He does a survey, he gathers facts, he gathers data, he meets with the people, he casts the vision, and they, they are like, we are with you, we are in on this. But as we said last week, whenever you're part of a God-given vision, there will be risk and there will be sacrifices to be made. The people walked away from their jobs. They walked away from their daily lives for almost 60 days. They made great financial sacrifice and with their, and with their time and their talent to this work. Well, unfortunately, there was this guy named Sanballat who had built up a lot of power and wealth, and he suddenly realized that the significant financial and political clout that he had built over years was being threatened, by it, and it was benefiting from Israel being disorganized. And it was going away as this wall was being rebuilt, so he felt threatened. And that's where our story picks up in Nehemiah 4. Nehemiah writes, When Sanballat heard that we were, we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Now I want to look at these areas where he criticized the Jews because these are the areas where other, others will criticize us when we are living out what God has called us to do and living the life that God has called us to live. He says, what are those feeble Jews doing? And the word feeble in the Hebrew was used to describe a plant that was withering away. So essentially he was attacking their character, that they don't have the character to do a job like this. 
He says, will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? In this, he attacks their abilities. You know, they're never going to get to the point that they have a victory celebration. Will they finish in a day? He's attacking their commitment. You know, this is going to take months. These people do not have what it takes to stick with it for that long. Can they bring these stones back to life from these heaps of rubble burned as they are? He's attacking the feasibility of their work. This is impossible to take all that rubbish, put it all together in a way that's going to make any difference. And then Tobiah, the Ammonite who was at his side, he said, what they are building, even a fox climbing up on it would break it down, break down their wall of stones. And in this, he's attacking their competency. It's like anything they build, the smallest of animals could knock it down. They are wasting their time. I wonder, have you ever felt criticized like that? I mean, ever felt criticized for your character, your ability, your commitment, your competency, even the feasibility of what you felt like you were wanting to accomplish or do or pursue? Well, apparently this little speech gets back to the Jews, uh, so they begin to get discouraged. And so Nehemiah has to rally the troops and go, hey, we're not going to stop just because people are getting critical. So they kept working. Then we jump down to verse 7. So when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, and the Ammonites, the people of Ashdod, heard that the uh, repairs to the Jerusalem walls had gone on ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were now very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. Now these four areas, uh, Samaria, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and Ashdod, these were the four provinces, provinces around Jerusalem. So north, east, south, and west. And so the leaders, they get together, they gather their armies, and uh, they're planning to attack from all four sides to stop the building of this wall. Verse 10, meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble that they cannot rebuild the wall. And also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them, and we will kill them and put an end to this work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So here's the picture. They are all in. I mean, they have sacrificed greatly. They're trying to accomplish this enormous monumental task. And someone comes running in and says, Nehemiah, I live down by the Arabs and they're gathering an army and they're going to attack us. Before he finished, somebody from the Ammonite side of the city runs in and says, Nehemiah, the Ammonites are forming an army and they're going to come and attack us. And then someone from the Samaria side runs in. The Samaritans are putting together an army. They're going to come in and attack us. Well, the word gets out among the workers that, okay, first they were criticizing us. Now they're going to come and kill us. So everybody threw down their tools. They walked off the jobs like, we're out. Now, some of you, you can relate. Because some of you in your life, you had an idea. Maybe it was a big idea. Maybe even it was like a God-sized idea. But somebody criticized it to death. I mean, you were so excited, maybe you began to share your idea with, or your vision in some of you. Maybe it was just you wanted to make a personal change in your life. It wasn't some big change to the world vision. Maybe you just wanted to get your finances right, and you shared it with somebody like, ah, oh, you know, everybody lives with debt. Everybody, like, that's just not realistic. Or you wanted to make a physical change. It's like, ah, oh, you know, like, you know, that's just, I don't know, you know, that's not really you. I, I've got a good friend. The people closest to him chided him for years for how serious he was about his faith and about church, about saving sex for his future wife. And then early in college, he wanted to pave the way to a solid financial future. 
and, he, and to give generously to the work of the church. So he began buying small properties and working on them and selling them and all this while in college. And it just ate up a lot of his discretionary time. And his friends all told him he was stupid. Like, these are the college years. You're supposed to be having fun. You're going to regret it. And yet now he's married to this amazing woman and who he waited for and she for him. And at about half my age... He's already been far more relationally and financially successful than most people are in their lifetime. But when we live with a God-given vision to live our lives for something bigger than ourselves, it so plays on the insecurities of other people that they just begin to criticize. You know why? Because when you are working to get your life together physically, spiritually, financially, you begin to take steps to make the world a better place and make an impact on others, the people around you, the next generation it's going to be a reflection of what they're not and what they're not doing. They don't want you to pull ahead, to rise above and succeed and, and leave them behind on some area that they've either not tried or that they tried and failed. So they're going to criticize you. They're going to try to kill your vision and get you to settle back into mediocrity with them. Others of you are in situations where your vision makes people feel like they're out of control. Maybe you feel like God moving to give more of your time or to give more financially to make a difference in someone close to you, maybe a spouse. They feel threatened, so they criticize you. I've known spouses that were married to an unbeliever, and they start moving towards God, start reading their Bible, start praying, and their spouse just feels threatened. A few years ago, I had a woman come to me and tell me that she had given her life to Christ, and when she shared it with her husband, his response was, well, you've just ruined the marriage. I've seen spouses start to get involved, trying to change their life, try to make their life better, but they get criticized long enough and they don't know how to deal with it, and that fire just gets extinguished and it just goes away. And they lose their vision and a part of them dies. You're a single adult who has a vision for what you want a potential marriage to be someday. You want to marry a godly man or a godly woman, have a Christian home and raise your kids right, but to get there it means you have to pass on a lot of invitations and a lot of date offers. And you have friends going, listen, you're, you're in your 30s. If you wait till, too long, you're going to miss your opportunity. I mean, you can always get more spiritual. They can't get any better looking, okay? Just like your standards are too high. You're going to spend the rest of your life single, criticized. Criticize, criticize, just extinguishing the vision that you want for your future. Are you trying to raise your children, set them up for a certain course mentally, spiritually, physically, and you even have peers, maybe even family going like, what are you doing? Like, you're going to ruin them, or they can't stay babies forever, or you're overprotective, you need to loosen up a little. Or you had a vision for God to use you to impact the people that you work with. And maybe you shared your vision or even tried to share your faith at work and just boom. And you got so criticized. And it's just like poof. It just puts your candle out. Now here's what I want you to hear. If you're a Christian and you determine, God, I'm serious. I want to see others the way you see them. I want to be burdened with the things that burden you. Use me to make a difference. You need to know, God is thrilled about that. And when you get criticized, he cares about that. He's concerned, but he does not want you to give up. The way Nehemiah responded to criticism has incredible application for us. The first thing that Nehemiah did was he prayed. Verse 4, hear us, O God, for we are despised. I love this next part. Turn their insults back on their own heads. 
Show them how incompetent they are, what scum they are. See, this was all pre-Jesus where we had to pray for, you prayed a different kind of prayer for your enemies. Whatever they said about us, go get them, God. Like, give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Make them helpless before their enemies. Do not cover up their guilt. Do not blot out their sins from your sight. Never forgive them. No matter how much they beg, no mercy, no forgiveness, ever. For they have thrown insults in the face of your builders. You're thinking, if I could pray more like that, I'd pray more. Okay, Nehemiah is ticked off. Why? I mean, think about it. I mean, he, he lived in the palace. He was one of the most trusted men of the king himself. He's given up his, own, his whole career to go to this God-forsaken desert, to these people who could care less. He's thrown his whole life into this, and now they're finally making progress. They've made incredible sacrifice financially and with their time. They've taken great risk. And there's these self-interested, petty people who are just jealous and felt threatened and are going to start a war to stop, stop this whole thing. And Nehemiah is ticked. He's like, God, here is how the unfiltered way I feel. And this is what I wish would happen to those sons of motherless goats. And when you criticize and I'm criticized, there's just this natural tendency to get defensive and to reflect back that criticism to the people that criticize us. Or maybe with your personality, you internalize it. And you just shove it down and you hold it in and you hold it in and then somebody a little smaller, a little weaker comes along And they do something that's so small and insignificant by itself, but man, you just explode all over them. Because all that emotion and anger, it can't be held in forever. And what Nehemiah did, he modeled something so helpful. He was mad. He was mad. He was mad at the people for quitting. He was mad at the people that made them quit. He was just mad. So he got on his knees. He took all that energy and emotion and he directed it to his Heavenly Father. And when we're criticized for doing the good thing, the right thing, the great thing, when we're criticized for doing what we feel like God is calling us to do in our life, instead of allowing that defensive thing to cause us to go home and be angry and kick the dog or be rude to to your spouse or short-tempered with your kids or just shut down or defend yourself to the people who've criticized you or to have that last word which doesn't ever accomplish anything, we're taught in Scripture to cast all our cares upon God. And when we channel all that frustration and anger towards God, especially when we're doing what we believe that God has called us to do, it puts it in proper perspective. It diffuses all that emotion and prepares and positions you to respond appropriately to your critics. And by going right to God, pouring out his heart, it allowed him to do what we need to do. And that is to remember. To remember something so crucial. So he prayed, and then he posts armed guards. He gathers the people. After I looked things over, I stood up, and I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Because when you sense God is leading you to live for something bigger, for an idea or a plan or a vision to make a difference in the lives of others, and you begin to get criticized about it, there is this tendency to start second-guessing. I mean, somebody says, you know, you're incompetent. And you begin to think, well, maybe I am. Or you'll never do it. Well, I mean, man, they may be right. or They imply you just don't have what it takes. You're like, man, that's like my greatest fear. I mean, maybe I don't. What if I don't have what it takes? And you'll second-guess what you feel led to with, with Nehemiah, 
the people threw down their tools, they go back to their homes, and he's going, whoa, hold up. Like, did you, do you think I was just back in Persia bored? You know, that I just felt like, you know what I'll do? I'm going to take on this impossible task. I'm going to give my life to it and then die as a man who failed. That's what I want to do. I think I'll leave the comforts of the palace and wander over again to this, this desert to try to get these apathetic people together to rebuild a wall. I mean, that's what I want to do with the rest of my life? This wasn't my idea. This was God's idea. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. We are here because God told us to be here. And the text tells us that this passionate reminder refocused the people. And they all went, you're right, and it inspired them to continue. Because when you evaluate criticism in light of your ability, potential, and commitment, the odds are you'll be intimidated and you'll be discouraged. But when you evaluate criticism in light of the fact that this is something God has called you to do, called you to do. You can look at your critics and, and kind of chuckle and say, you know, you know what? You're probably right. You're probably right that I don't have what it takes. You're probably right that I don't have what it takes to impact a child's life or a teenager's life or a student's life in a meaningful way or this age or stage or category of life or category of people who, who are struggling. But this wasn't my idea. This was God's idea. And no, I, I don't know how we're going to get there. But I'm not trusted in my competency, in my character, in my ability, in the feasibility. I'm trusted in my great and awesome God. Almost seven years ago, on March 18th, 2016, I had lunch with a man named Brian Johnson. After, uh, another Wichita pastor had called him and told him, hey, you, you need, we need to meet. I was fresh out of a role with another church in Wichita, and during our conversation, Brian brought up, that I should consider planning a church in the Wichita area. The problem was, is I'm not a church planner. I am no church planner. In fact, I knew some individuals back in seminary who even took like a class on like planning a church. And I remember thinking back, that is a special, little bit weird uh, breed of individual. I am definitely not one of those, not now, not ever. Uh, but in my life, I have discovered God has a creative sense of humor. Uh, because after making it clear, I am no church planter. Here I was being asked to plant a church, and then to complicate matters even more, just a few weeks into the conversation, I unexpectedly was offered a position at a, it was a large, it was a young, it was a diverse, uh, fast-growing church in beautiful North Carolina, like, and on paper it was a no-brainer, and at that point, Sean and I just so desperately wanted to move away and start fresh, which another God sense of humor, I'd said years ago at 17 when I left Wichita, I will never move back to Wichita again. I moved to Andover, so I still be rebelling. Uh, but we just wanted to move away and start fresh. I mean, mountains and scenery, bonus. They flew us out for a week. They wined and dined. They interviewed us. They cast vision for me being on staff. And in an unprecedented move for them, they had never done this before with someone else, they actually offered me the position before we flew out that day, our last day. But we told them we needed a few days to, to pray and a process with trusted people in our lives. Then that afternoon, Sean and I boarded our plane. We buckled in our seats. I looked over at her and I said, so what are you sensing? And she looked at me and she said, babe, I'm just not feeling it. I said, neither am I. And then we just broke down and cried. <laughs> and I looked back at that and I realized part of it was that I was struggling to submit to what God was calling me to do. 
right after returning, I had four separate conversations, one with my dad, one with a trusted close friend, one with an amazing group of young adults that I had worked with prior, uh, and then ultimately with the senior pastor that I'd just been working for and his wife, and we had dinner together, and the unanimous feedback was, you need to plant a church, which is not what I wanted to hear. Because again, did I mention I'm not a church planner? I don't have what it takes. And yet, I knew this is what God wanted me to do. And it connected something bigger. My unrelenting, God-given burden and vision to reach non-Christians, post-Christians, to create a church that the unchurched and the de-churched would love to attend and engage. So two months following that first meeting, the evening of May 10th, 2016, a group of 10 of us sat in a circle on my back deck. And the decision, after prayer and discussion, the decision was made. God, we're in. Let's do this. And since that day, I can't tell you how many times I have prayed, God, what have you gotten me into? Like, I'd like to remind you, Father, that this was your idea, okay, not mine. And if you don't show up, it's going to fail. And I'm not a church planner. I'm just a man who is radically changed by your love and mercy and grace. And I just desperately want everyone else to experience that as well. But I cannot do this without you. And every single day, I feel the weight of leadership and desperately wanting to see everyone connected to new life take their next steps in their spiritual journey. To experience growth and life transformation and relational transformation. I am constantly facing questions and problems and even criticisms. And I'm thinking I, I don't have all the answers. And if I were to place on one side of the scale all of the questions and challenges and criticisms and on the other side my skills, talents, abilities and expertise I would just crawl into bed pull the sheet up over my head say I can't do this, find somebody else because I can't do this anymore but when I remember when I pause and remember I don't have all the answers to all these questions. I don't have all the solutions. And some of the criticisms are spot on. But God, God initiated this. I'm not doing this because I woke up one morning and thought, I am so bored. I need to take on a venture that has a less than 2 in 10 chance of succeeding and commit myself to something that might put my family at financial risk and take on a role that keeps me up at night and six years in has made me almost totally gray. (laughs) No, I'm doing this because, God, this was your idea. So first name I prayed which one of the things prayer does is it helps us remember and put things in perspective, and he remembers. And the third thing he did was, when he found out they were going to attack, he didn't chuck the vision, he revised the plan. Chapter 4, verse 16, from that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. Oh, I like Nehemiah. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. Now, I want to beat my chest right now. He called everyone together. He says, okay, up to this point, we've given up almost 100%. We've given 100% of our attention to the wall. We're changing our approach. 
I need half of you to stand armed for battle and stand guard. You're now the army. Go army. On the other side, you're the workers. But you're, if you're carrying materials, you're to do it with one hand and have a weapon in the other. And the rest of you wear your sword. Go team. He revised the plan. But he never lost sight of the vision. You think, what does any of this have to do with my life? It's this. There's a difference between the vision God has given you for what he wants to do in and through you and the plans that you come up with to accomplish that. See, there's a, a tendency to determine the value and success of a, a vision that God has given us based on the success of our plans. As one leader says, date the strategy. Marry the vision. The vision never changes. Plans and strategy changes all the time. The vision is from God. The approach, the strategy, the plans, they generally come from us. And what Nehemiah does is he models for us that when the plans don't work, you don't give up on the vision. He models for us what it is to distinguish between a vision that God's given us for the life, what he wants to do in and through us, and the plans that we come up with. So over time, God will fine-tune and sharpen the vision and bring it into focus. But the plans that you and I come up with to accomplish the vision, they have to change all the time. And to give up on your vision because the plans don't work is unnecessary and probably wrong. In fact, you have to change your original plan, and I'm living this. The process of reevaluating for change does something amazing because it causes you to be even more dependent on God, which causes you to become more focused and committed to the vision that God has given you or is seeking to refine and clarify in you. It would be like if you felt God was calling you to make an impact in your office or wherever it is that you work. And so you decide, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get the biggest Bible that I can find. I'm going to place it on my desk, and that way people will see it, and it will start conversations. And then the next day, the boss comes in and goes, what's that? You can't have that in here. Get rid of the Bible. And you go, well, there goes the vision. And God's going, what? No. Like, you've just got to come up with a different plan. The vision stays the same. There's a great true story of an incident in the life of Thomas Edison. That just, it illustrates what I'm trying to say. Edison's son, Charles, he writes this event in his book titled The Electric Thomas Edison. One December evening, the cry of fire echoed through the plant. Spontaneous combustion had broken out in the film room. Within moments, all the packing compounds, celluloid for records, film, and other flammable goods had gone up with a whoosh. When I couldn't find father, I became concerned. Was he safe? With all of his assets going up in smoke, would his spirit be broken? I mean, at 67, he was at no age to begin anew. Then I saw him in the plant yard running towards me. (laughs) Where's mom? He shouted. Go get her. Tell her to get her friends. They'll never see a fire like this again. (laughs) Edison's son continues. At 5.30 the next morning, When the fire was barely under control, he called his employees together and announced, we're rebuilding. One man was told to lease all the machine shops in the area, another to obtain a wrecking crane from the Erie Railroad Company. Then almost as an afterthought, he added, oh, and by the way, anybody know where we can get some money? Later on, he explained, you can always make capital out of disaster. 
We just cleared out a bunch of old rubbish. We'll build bigger and better on these ruins. And with that, he rolled up his coat for a pillow, curled up on a table, and immediately fell asleep. For those of us who are Christians, and if you're not, I'm so glad you're here. Again, we created this place with you in mind. But if you're a Christian, we have been given the responsibility of men and women's souls. I don't know why God chose us. But Jesus settled that on the side of a mountain and said, okay, I'm out for now. It's up to you. Your plan A. There is no plan B. Go make disciples. And if you're a Christian, God has positioned each and every one of you to play a role in that assignment. Also in the season, I just want you to know that we as a church, as we begin 2023, like a marriage, there are some predictable seasons and stages to starting and growing a church. And when we started back in 2017, we started with a vision and a plan and a strategy. And as we enter our seventh year, God has surrounded me with some amazing hearts and minds and men and women who believe in the vision of creating a church that the unchurched would love to attend and engage, which, by the way, is something that I've been criticized for by other leaders and other pastors, including in this city. But you know, I don't care. Uh, we believe in the vision of creating a church to lead as many people as possible into a growing, transforming relationship with Jesus Christ, one that will ultimately impact our city and our world and the next generation. And we want to see more people taking their steps in their faith journey, more people going public with their faith in baptism, more stories of people, especially the next generation, embracing a God-given vision for their life, and what God wants to do in and through them, seeing what is as opposed to what could be locally and beyond. So we're beginning the work to revisit everything we do as a church, our model, our strategy, taking the first steps to thoughtfully and prayerfully and aggressively do the hard work of renewing clarity of who God has called us to be and what he is calling us to do as a church and to gain clarity as to what he has next. In other words, we're revising the plan. And I couldn't be happier. Because honestly, a lot of great things have happened in and through this community over the last six years. But at the same time, some things, some important things, they haven't. But we cannot and we will not lose sight of the vision that God has given us. And if we are faithful to it, with the help of Almighty God, we will see fruit of our labor if we do not grow weary in the laboring the people of Nehemiah's day were reminded and then they revised the plan. They went back to work and next week we're going to come back and find out what happened next. Let me pray for us. Father, I, I pray for our community. I pray for those that have been here for a long time, for those who are just visiting for the first time. We want to be a part of what you would do in this city. And Father, as we consider a community where over the half of the people identifies no religious affiliation, Father, that you would use us to make an impact and make a difference. That you would do in and through us far more than we could ask or imagine. And Father, this, this church community, it was, it was your idea. I believe you brought us together and that all the people are now part of this community, Father, that you are, you're, you're doing something. You're shaping us and preparing us. So, Father, we want to be, be a part of that and we want to see you do what only you can do in changing lives 
And as was already prayed this morning, Father, I just pray again. Cause us to see others the way you see them. Cause us to see ourselves the way you see us. So that when we're burdened with the things that burden you, we'll not shy away from it. We'll lean into it. And we will trust you to make up for what we don't have. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.